I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you, Claire. Uh, thank you. Um, the, the, the way that uh, tonight will, will work is very simple and straightforward. Uh, Column has selected Bishop and Gunn, specifically some <laughs> excerpts from a Bishop reading in 1977 and a Tom Gunn reading in 1992. We'll hear the Bishop first, uh, three poems, uh, the map in the waiting room and Santorim from across her uh, career. We've given out those poems so you can follow along. Uh, and then there are two Tom Gunn poems from 92 to close. Uh, as you probably well know, Column has written somewhat thoroughly on both Elizabeth Bishop and Tom Gunn. And I think we'll start by him discussing why he's chosen to put the two of them together tonight. Um, thanks, Bernard. It, it, may, it may not be obvious um, Gunn was an, an English poet who lived in California for most of his life, and Bishop was an American poet, or at least was um, partly from Nova Scotia, and sort of moved downwards, um, going, going just from Nova Scotia to um, New York, to Florida, to Brazil, and back to Boston. Um, and um, so they're from different countries, and they're, they're, in a way they worked in different elements. But... but, but um, Oddly enough, they coincided for a short period when Bishop lived in San Francisco. And she kept, if you follow the correspondence, she kept, I think she really deplored the beats and all the freedoms available in San Francisco at that time. She was against those sort of freedoms. She loved restrictions. And she was also in, in, desperately in, in against gay liberation. She said, closets, closets, and more closets, she said. <laughs> and... Um, she, um, but, but you sort of notice in the correspondence, she keeps writing to people to say, I, I, the only poet I like here is Tom Gunn. And she says, for example, to Robert Lowell, August 68, well, I've met some of the poets, and the only one I still really like is Tom Gunn. October 68, she writes to Marianne Moore, one poet I've met here, almost a neighbour, I like very much, Tom Gunn. His poetry is usually very good, I think. He's English, but has lived here for a long time. And then the following year, in February, she did a reading with Gunn. And she thought that Gunn's poems and mine were the best. <laughs> um, this is a letter she wrote to James Merrill. 
And then um, she wrote to another friend, um, same time, but I like Tom Gunn best, I think. It almost sounds like an alibi for something. Gunn remembered then, um, there's a sort of oral biography of Bishop where Gunn was interviewed, and he remembered, um, yes, he remembered meeting Bishop in the spring of 1968, and he said, I answered the phone one day, and there was a very nice man I didn't know who asked me to come and have drinks with him and Elizabeth Bishop because she wanted to meet me. Elizabeth had just moved to San Francisco, so I went over, and there were Elizabeth and her female partner at the time, whose name was changed um, for just personal reasons. Elizabeth was drunk out of her mind. We made polite conversation all evening, while Elizabeth occasionally grunted out a monosyllable. The next day, her partner phoned and wondered if I would like to try again. This time, I was asked over to their place, and we got on wonderfully from then on. Elizabeth and I talked quite a lot during that year. It wasn't so we spoke much about our private lives. That's what makes a real friendship, a close friendship, meaning not to talk about your private life to somebody. Um, She and I talked about poets we liked and specific poems that we liked and disliked. I never let Elizabeth know this, but I didn't particularly like her poetry myself at that time. (laughs) When I first got to know her, I took another look at her poetry. I, I wasn't greatly struck by it. There seemed to be something, for lack of a better word, that I'll call deeper in her that, that hadn't got into the poetry. It wasn't until Geography 3, with poems like The Moose, and these poems that we're going to look at, um, two of these poems, or three poems, that I saw that side of her. In a sense, with Geography 3, I can find more virtues in the earlier poetry than I could before. It reflects back on the early poetry. And then he reviewed Geography 3, and um, he, um, he talked about um, it, it, sort of, it sort of changing the whole way we look at her career. And... Um, what they, um, what they had in common is interesting. Um, I mean, why they didn't discuss their personal lives, why their friendship was formed about discussing things other than themselves, was that both of them had something they didn't want to talk about. Um, and, and we notice this um, in Gunn's book, Boss Cupid, where he, he writes a poem called The Gas Poker. And in that poem, he, it's a poem about the suicide of his mother, when he was about 14, and he just says, um, could it have been 43 years ago? And it's the first mention of the suicide, the first open mention of the suicide in his work, 43 years after it occurs. And if you look at the poetry, you find that, that you wonder if Gunn's extraordinary control over stanza forms, over rhyme schemes, over metre, and indeed his, his attempt to loosen in, uh, under the influence of various American poets, including Robert Duncan, loosened himself from these, these sort of straight, this formal straitjacket that he had got first under the, under the care of F.R. Levis and then um, under the care of, um, 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 oh, help me, um, Ivor Winters. And um, that um, he simply did not want, he, as he said in an interview, I don't want to be Sylvia Plath. In other words, that whatever he was suffering, he did not want it to come into the public domain. He wanted to keep it perhaps buried in the rhythm of his poems, or perhaps not there at all, just, 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 just simply something he, he, that there was so much pain and difficulty with. That, I mean, I mean the, 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 what he did instead was, his name, I, um, I, I bought some of his books from a second-hand dealer in Berkeley, and the early, his, he writes his name on early books he owned, uh, as William Thompson, because his name was Thompson. Um, sorry, his name was... Um, his, his name was... I'm going to get this wrong. Um, his name was... Gun, his, 
Yes, his mother's name was Thompson. So he's William Thompson Gunn in those books. And he changes his name by deed poll eventually to Tom Gunn. So his mother's name, Thompson, would be in his name. And his brother, Anders, has a description of just how close he was to his mother. His parents had divorced. His brother were being brought up by his mother. And they found his mother um, after she had gassed herself. The two boys did. And um, he was, after that, brought up by aunts until he went to Cambridge. And then soon after he went to Cambridge, he made his home in California. Um, and he, um, on his death certificate, it just says that he died from acute polysubstance abuse. In other words, that in his 70s, he continued to take drugs that even those of us who are in our 60s have stopped taking. Um, and um, this reticence, this, this idea in a time when everyone, especially in the United States, was effect, deeply affected by Robert Lowell's book Life Studies, in which you explored your own inner demons, and your own inner demons became the subject of your poetry. If you had a divorce, in the case of W.D. Snodgrass, Heart's Needle became your book about the divorce. If you had depression as Anne Sexton, your book became about that difficulty. So too with Sylvia Plath. And in that, in, in that period, which was, it was called confessional poetry, Gunn stuck to his guns, as it were, and, and simply would not describe any trauma in his life, including, for example, it took him a long time to deal with his homosexuality. There's a sort of wonderful moment where the you which he's used so beautifully up to then as a sort of disguise, as a, as a doubling, as a sort of ambiguity, suddenly becomes he, him. And uh, there's a moment in Jack Straw's Castle especially where you see it and you think, oh, this is a great moment, not only in poetry, but in the history of gay liberation. Bishop had no interest in gay liberation, as I said. She had her own demons. Her father died when she was six months old, and when she was about four or five, her mother began to have serious nervous attacks so that she was put into a mental hospital and she was never released from that hospital in Halifax. And so she was brought up as well by aunts. She was an orphan. She was an only child. She suffered from asthma. She became an alcoholic. And um, she, she, she had a small trust fund. And so she moved to Brazil. But, in, but the poems once more um, exude a great reticence, a great way of needing to define the world as though no one has seen the world before. It must be controlled by her, the sentences and the rhythms of her poems. There, there, when she writes her famous poem, One Art, the poem, the villanelle that begins, The Art of Losing Isn't Hard to Master, it looks as though she's playing, sometimes mentioning small things like house keys that you can lose, and then big things like a continent or houses or rivers. But in the middle, what's missing is mentioning that she lost her mother, that she lost her father and that she lost her lover, um, who committed suicide um, in New York um, when she was there. And um, Oddly enough, you see that poem repeating the lines, the art of losing isn't hard to master. And you come across in a letter where she just actually says it. I lost my mother, I lost my father, I lost, my, I lost Lotum, who was, who was her lover. That idea of loss for her was deeply personal. In the villanelle, she makes it almost playful. She leaves out the things that matter to her that she lost. And it isn't as though she didn't try. You can see scraps of poems that she didn't publish, she didn't finish, where she tries to deal with her mother, but um, she actually doesn't complete a poem about it. So that both of them, in a time when it was fashionable to write poems about trauma, about the self, about the dark um, spaces of the self, both of them kept away from that. So you can see them 
I mean, that wonderful first meeting where she's so drunk she can't speak. And then when she gets to speak, what, she's, what she doesn't say becomes more important, that they talk about the art of poetry. I am... Um, Anyone here who saw Tom Gunn reading will know what I'm talking about, which was that uh, he really had no interest whatsoever in being famous. Uh, perhaps he was more interested in being famous in certain bars in San Francisco <laughs> than he was in the world of poetry. When I saw him first, I presumed there would be a huge crowd to see him in San Francisco. There was a huge crowd to see Armistead Maupin, and um, there was a huge crowd to see Isabel Allende. And in a side room, about 20 of us sat listening to Tom Gunn reading The Man with Night Sweats. And it was an astonishing... Well, I was talking to him afterwards. He thought that was just the best idea, just to have 20 and no more, so that he could slip off home as soon as possible. It was a Saturday. I think he had famous Saturday nights. I always wondered where he went. But he would never tell anyone in the literary world, because he thought the literary world was a strange thing that needed to be kept away from him. And um, he, he read... Um, sometimes in a sort of monotone. He read as little as possible. I saw him reading a second time in San Francisco with a much younger, much less famous poet. Well, he gave the other poet all the time in the world and he read three or four poems and everyone had come to see him. So there was a sort of reticence, a distance from the world of poetry. And it wasn't just... It was the world of easy emotion. And it's a phrase we're going to find in this first poem by Elizabeth Bishop where she talks about, I think, the thing that really made her and Gunn both afraid. It was this, um, it's, in the third, it's in the second stanza, it's the third last line of the map, where she talks about emotion too far exceeds its cause. I think that idea for both of them of sentimentality or of overreaction or of responding to an experience um, with too much rather than too little so that they both were careful and restrained and they used stands of form and systems of irony and systems of understatement so, so as not to be the person who, who exudes emotion and emotion that, far too, that too far exceeds its cause. So let's just listen to this first poem of the Elizabeth Bishop, The Map. Land lies in water. It is shadowed green. Shadows, or are they shallows? At its edges, showing the line of long, seaweeded ledges where weeds hang to the simple blue from green. Or does the land lean down to lift the sea from under, drawing it unperturbed around itself? Along the fine, tan, sandy shelf is the land tugging at the sea from under. The shadow of Newfoundland lies flat and still. Labrador is yellow, where the moony Eskimo has oiled it. We can stroke these lovely bays under a glass as if they were expected to blossom, or as if to provide a clean cage for invisible fish. The names of seashore towns run out to sea. The names of cities cross the neighboring mountains the printer here experiencing the same excitement as when emotion too far had seeds its cause. These peninsulas take the water between thumb and finger like women feeling for the smoothness of yard goods. Mapped waters are more quiet than the land is, lending the land their waves own confirmation and Norway's hair runs south in agitation. 
profiles investigate the sea where land is. Are they assigned or can the countries pick their colors? What suits the character or the native waters best? Topography displays no favorites. North's is near as west. More delicate than the historians are the map makers' colors. Um, when is it? Um, it it's, it's an early poem in the first book. No, really. Oh, 1977. Yeah. Um, she, she wrote this poem called, I'm sure he knows this, um, claiming one single sitting in 1934 when she was 23, just contemplating a map under glass between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, I think, and thought of it as the, the first sort of poem that was worth showing people. Um, there's, a, there's a new biography. Do you want to? No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, there's a, there's a new biography coming out of, of Bishop by a longtime bishop scholar named Thomas Travisano, who uh, put together a collection of the Bishop Lowell correspondence, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, and he talks about a story that Bishop wrote of being in kindergarten in Canada and um, paying close attention. It was a school where the kindergartners were in with the older students, and the older students, the fourth and fifth graders, got geography. And she would pay attention to the geography lessons, even though they were for the older students. And the, the maps came down off a roll at the front of the classroom. And she loved the way they snapped down and snapped back up. And she describes in an early story of hers just longing to hold the map and, and touch the countries with her, own, with her own hands. And imagining at that time that uh, the, the whole rest of the world fit into Canada rather than... The other way around. What were you going to say? Um, could you talk a bit about um, the um, reading she did that she didn't want record that she didn't want a recording of? Sure. Um, so p- part, I think, of what Colin was saying earlier on about the, the reticence of both Gunn and Bishop can be thought of uh, as far as a skepticism where it comes to public performance. Um, there's a, a remembrance that Gunn's partner, Mike Cate, wrote after Gunn died, he says, uh, uh, you know, Gunn didn't want to be Dylan Thomas. The, there's a moment that he's uh, thinking uh, along uh, when Cate and Gunn first met at Cambridge and Gunn was giving his first poetry readings. And, and of course, the why and Dylan Thomas have a famous or infamous uh, history. And for Bishop, too, in this 1977 recording, most, most poets will read for a half hour, 40 minutes or so. She reads for about 22 minutes. The first sound you hear on the microphone when she comes up is a cough and then an apology saying that she's got a cold. Uh, the Y was trying to get Bishop to read on its you know, stage as early as 1947, 30 years prior. We know this because that first letter in, in Words and Air, she writes to Robert Lowell, is I was supposed to be at the Y, too, on Saturday night. I hope my absence was more of a help than a hindrance. They hadn't met yet. They were soon to meet at Randall Jarrell's house. Uh, she then was pursued by the likes of me, running the Poetry Center, um, through the, the 50s and 60s, and there are letters. She, she had a close friend who ran the Poetry Center in the late 40s and early 50s named John Malcolm Brennan, and she writes a letter to him. She's on the schedule to read at the Y in the spring of 1950, 
and uh, writes to him and says that she's sorry. Some, some, pe- some people like doing it. She doesn't. She's read in the papers how he's attracting crowds of hundreds of people, and it's just not her thing. Um, you know, she, she writes from Brazil in the mid-1960s to uh, another of my predecessors, talking about how it makes her miserable, and she doesn't think that people like to see other people being uh, made to feel miserable. When she (laughs) finally gets to the Y, it's in 1973, with James Merrill, and um, she immediately writes to the Y. Uh, uh, Merrill couldn't have been happier to read with Elizabeth Bishop at the Y. He had first been at the Y in in the mid-1940s because he was close with uh, one of the earlier directors of the Poetry Center. This is a little inside baseball. but he, he said, no, no better dance partner could I have imagined than Elizabeth Bishop. Bishop, on the other hand, writes to the Poetry Center after the reading, uh, complaining uh, that on that evening she'd had some combination of bronchitis and dysentery, and that she must sound like a hypochondriac, but that she's been put off, uh, and it's lingered, this experience of having had her photo taken and her voice recorded. The response uh, that... Re- turns to Bishop now in Seattle. Uh, we, have, we have the letters um, in our archive from the secretary of the Poetry Center says, um, I've seen to it myself that the recording has been burned and that the negatives of the photographs uh, have been destroyed. Um, some of the photos still exist um, and there are backstage moments of, um, of almost, you know, kind of lightness and joy. Someone had come in and given... Um, Bishop and Merrill laurels, crowns, and they are seen kind of just giggling with each other. But the recording in 73 uh, was destroyed upon Bishop's request. Uh, We don't do that anymore. If somebody says, don't record me, we just kind of secretly do it. uh, (laughs) Don't release it to the public. This is is a nice moment to give a shout-out to our website. Um, For example, we're only hearing a a portion of the Bishop uh, reading from 1977 tonight. If you uh, Google uh, um, the Poetry Center and Elizabeth Bishop, you'll, you'll be able to hear the, the entire reading. Um, so she, she makes an appearance in 1974, the following year, um, to, to read from her memoir of Marianne Moore. And it isn't until 1977 when she reads with Howard Moss, who was her longtime uh, New Yorker editor. And that's, that's the one that um, we're listening to today. And as I say, um, that reticence carries over into a kind of skepticism. The end of, of the reading has her saying, after, again, a, a, a 20-some-odd minutes, I, I think that's enough, and le- leaving the stage. Howard Moss, in contrast, reads for you know, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> Everyone was there to see Bishop. Uh, James Merrill said about her that she did a lifelong imitation of an ordinary woman. And... Um, that, uh, that business of what she did, um, I mean, how she moved to Brazil, how she was just simply out of the loop, how she constantly, the letters are great, just no matter what event is occurring, she doesn't want to be at it. And if she has to even go to the United States for any purpose, it's always heavens. She uses heavens. Um, it's a, it, it's, I discovered it's in Nova Scotia. It's, it's a Halifax. It's a thing you do in Nova Scotia. You say, heavens, I think it's going to rain tomorrow. Or heavens, I have to go to the London Review bookshop. Heavens. And I was listening to the radio one morning in Nova Scotia, and I was so delighted. The woman kept saying, heavens, to today or something. And she uses the word heavens in a poem. It's a poem called Poem, where she talks about a painting. And she says, suddenly in the poem says, heavens, I recognize the place. I know it. And this idea of heavens is always... 
when she realizes that in the United States, the poetry world is being dominated by Robert Lowell, by Randall Jarrell, by John Berryman, and by James Merrill, by Howard Moss, by various other people, but, uh, and, you know, uh, being created as this great eccentric figure was her friend Marianne Moore. I mean, not one of the boys, sort of strange, living with her mother in Brooklyn. Everyone knew all about the strangeness of Marianne Moore. And Elizabeth Bishop, either consciously or unconsciously, realized the only thing to do with this world was to get as far away from it as possible, was to become a mystery, was to live outside it, was to depend on Robert Lowell to get her prizes, if the prizes were going, or to get her whatever could be got um, in, in the poetry world without having to compete with the big boys. But she had a sense always, and she loved saying this to, in letters, that poems often took her 20 years, often took her more. Her poem, The Moose, for example, you can see a letter describing the experience of seeing the moose from a bus. And then you're talking 20 years later or more when she writes to her aunt to say, I'm dedicating the moose to you. You are not the moose. <laughs> and, then she, and then she reads the poem uh, um, to a... To a to a graduation ceremony, and then someone tells her, some great frenemy tells her afterwards, you know, that he, a student had said to another student, what was the poem like? He said, it was good as far as poems go. <laughs> and she loved that. She thought it was the nicest thing anyone had said about her work for a long time, that it was as good as poems could go. Um, the, the, she, she begins with, a, with an idea of an exquisite helplessness at the heart of her poetic self, that somehow the world is beyond her reach, beyond her control, that she's either too ill or too, or too helpless, too broke, too lost to actually be in the world. So the world has to be described as though it will soon move and not the things in it will not be there. So that, in, so that this second line of the poem, The Map, is one of the things she does all the time in her work, and, and we'll see it later on in the other poems, where she makes a statement and then wonders if the statement is true. She, she corrects herself in poems. It's one of her modes. It might seem like a trick, except that you notice, for example, when Robert Lowell produces Imitations, his book of translations, she writes to him with the tiniest... I mean, I think... I don't know if this is true, and you correct me if it's wrong, but I think the greatest pleasure you can have in life is correcting someone else's French. You know, that there's nothing more enjoyable than thinking, means rather than And um, that um, she, she really, really wrote a, a beautifully savage, gentle letter to Lowell, just pointing out how wrong his French was. Not just simply that he was, he was, he was you know, taking risks with the translation. He was simply wrong. And she thought... Why does it matter being wrong? And she's another letter about this. Well, she said it matters enormous if we don't pay attention to the small things in the world. There could be something enormous at stake if we do this. We mustn't do it. So that this poem, The Map, is, is one of the early poems of statement where, where almost everything is taken as though nothing can be taken for granted, if you'll excuse that sentence. And, um, but also the playfulness also, the, the fact that she has been, she's really interested in surrealism. She's really interested in what dreams can do. When she was at university, somebody noticed that she used to eat a quantity of cheese every night to see if her dreams could just be bigger and better and more strange. And this idea of taking an ordinary thing, she does it later on with, with her desk. 
she makes her desk into, uh, into a poem at every object as part of a battlefield. But as though seeing and then from the seeing beginning to actually begin to sort of almost um, manage the world by finding a way of looking at it which, which further estranges it. And every so often, I mean, she's really good. I mean, similes are the hardest things to do because nothing is like anything. Wordsworth, I mean, you know, the, the city just like a garment wear the beauty of the morning. Well, no, it doesn't. The city does not wear anything like a garment. Um, but um, and when Bishop has that... Um, that a, that a, that a, that a, a duck or some um, is, is moving through a pond and it's making a scissors shape in the water, like a scissors opening. But this one that she does here when she talks about peninsulas take the water between thumb and finger like women feeling for the smoothness of yard goods. And just that, that, that idea of, of a startling image, which she loved, of course, because she loved George Herbert. One of the things her second gun loved talking about was George Herbert. And she loved those sort of ways of re-seeing the entire world where you're talking about a peninsula, you know, uh, jutting out like that, but, but, but um, actually thumb and finger. And she thinks, for a minute, you can see her thinking, what's thumb and finger? How, do, how her mind works? Oh, she thinks back to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to almost Nova Scotia childhood, women feeling for the smoothness of yard goods. So the poem um, is essentially playful. Um, but it's also at its heart some idea that nothing can be taken for granted that even land, even water even the names for things must, must each one be written down in a, as I said in a poetry of statement something is something something is land lies in water it is shadowed green that, 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 uh, that, that idea of, of stating, controlling seeming to fix things because they might unfix if you didn't fix them. So that the um, entire syntax here is a syntax that is involved in, in a form of, of, let's say, reseeing the world in order to further control it or in order further that it might not unloose itself from one's grasp and um, that that is part of the sort of game of the poem. Um, do, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think... I think uh, <laughs> It doesn't sum it up, but it says enough for, for now. Uh, thinking along the lines and segueing into in the waiting room of her um, you know, fanaticism around things like accuracy in the correspondence with Howard Moss at The New Yorker, uh, who um, ends up publishing this next one in the waiting room. Uh, she preempts the fact-checkers, who possibly were the only people more fanatical than she would have been, about uh, about um, what was right uh, or, or erroneous in, in the poem. They, they fact-check poems. Um, I guess they still probably do. But, but she preempts it by saying, you'll notice in the waiting room, she calls out National Geographic. Um, and she goes back and checks that the issue she has in mind is the issue that she writes down, but then admits to Moss in the letter that she has conflated a couple of them yeah. in the poem as if she's confessing. Um, should, we, should we hear? Um, no, just, no just, just one more thing. Um, just, I want to say something about fact-checking. Um, I, I, I once said that um, in a piece for The New Yorker that Conor Cruiser Brown was the kiss of death, and the fact-checker called him up at home <laughs> and said, are you the kiss of death? Just checking. And... Um, 
he, and then they called me back saying he's denied this. And um, another time I said that Seamus Heaney was a Catholic. You know, just Seamus Heaney, a Catholic. And um, the fact checker faxed him. And he said, out of his fax machine, quite late at night, about 11 or 12 at night, a new fax came. And it was a fact checker to say, are you a Catholic? And so anyway, that's just fact checking. But just, just about this poem, um, the, just notice in this poem how the word um, inside is used. And on your second page, just notice when she says, suddenly from inside came an O of pain. I, I think the best book written on, um, on Elizabeth Bishop, Saving My Own Presence, is um, David Calstone's book called Becoming a Poet, which is about Robert Lowell, Marianne Moore and Bishop. And Calstone was in communication with Bishop and he said that inside, the word inside here should be read ambiguously, should be read as suddenly from inside, meaning from inside the, 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 the little girl's head as much as from inside the other room. Bishop was incandescent with rage. I think she must have been drunk. And she called him up long distance to say inside means inside as opposed to outside. The girl is outside in the waiting room. Her aunt is inside in the dentist's surgery. That is what inside means. It does not mean anything else. And if you go on thinking it does, I will change the word. Because I mean, I want words to mean what they say. I'm not having this. So just, uh, just, just as an interesting letter to David Cos. So let's read this poem. Uh, this recording is about four minutes long. In Worcester, Massachusetts... I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter, got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited, I read the National Geographic. I could read and carefully studied the photographs. The inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Osa and Martin Johnson dressed in riding breeches, laced boots and pith helmets. A dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked women with necks wound round and round with wire like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly, from inside, came an O of pain. Aunt Consuelo's voice. Not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then, I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. I, we, were falling, falling. Our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue-black space. But I felt 
You're an I, you're an Elizabeth, you're one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a side long glance. I couldn't look any higher. Shadowy gray knees, trousers and skirts and boots and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened. Nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt or me or anyone? What similarities? Boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one. How, I didn't know any word for it, how unlikely. How had I come to be here like them and overhear a cry of pain could have got loud and worse, but hadn't. The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another. Then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts, were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. The um, thing with Robert Lowell, um, I mean, the first things we learn about Bishop um, that are, I mean, as I said, there was so little in the poems about the self. But in the book, in his book History and the previous book Notebook, which he was a version of, Robert Lowell has a number of sonnets for Elizabeth Bishop. One he talks about. Um, he uses the phrase "words in air" that she, that she would hang her poems, you know, like, as though on a line, to, and you know, keep them there for years. And he said he called her someone who makes the casual perfect. He also has a has a sonnet where he's using a letter from Bishop, where she's talking about being at the end of her tether emotionally, and saying to him, "Your letter helped, like being mailed a lantern or a spiked stick." Bishop, of course, was very uneasy about her letters <laughs> letters being used by Lowell as poems. Um, but we get some sense for the first time, this is in the early 70s, of that there was a great deal behind these, these poems of bishops that seem so casual and um, that it's so easy to read this poem as just being about a girl in a waiting room with her aunt inside. Have to remember that um, the, the, I think it's, Bishop is one of those people where the more you learn about her, the more the poems seem deeper and stranger that um, no one knew what to do with this strange little girl once her mother was put away and her father died. The bishops were very rich. They, they, were, they were big builders. They had, they had built a lot of the main public buildings in New England. And um, she had a trust fund, but no one knew where she should be. When they came to Great Village, just, out, just in, in Nova Scotia, they found her in bare feet wandering around with chickens and stuff. And the bishops wanted her to get a proper education. But when they moved her from her mother's family, to their family, um, she, she, she became really ill and, and seriously unhappy. And then they moved her to an aunt where she was sort of better. But there was always this longing to go back to Great Village in Nova Scotia and back somehow to a past that was, of course, irrecoverable. So that this, this poem which begins, and if you notice her reading where she refuses to read a line as iambic, I mean, she, she refuses to go, to, I mean, you could go, um, to keep her debt, she just doesn't do to, when she has to keep. She won't stress 
the keep of it. She'll go to her, her reading system is as though this is prose, as though this is casual, as though this was written over a, you know, an otherwise busy weekend. That she just remembered that, yeah, I went with my aunt Consuelo um, and sat and waited for her. And this is why it's so important that the word inside means inside, because it's just what happened, written down as a matter of fact. And it's, it's this, and she does it also in her, in her poem at the fish houses, just describing something, uh, making something ordinary seem even more ordinary than it might have been. Just getting, getting the language of poetry and bringing it down to a level whereby there's no rhetoric involved, there's no poetry involved, there's no beat in, in the line. There's just a set of statements which are about ordinary experience. And what she's doing is um, she's actually holding her breath, as it were. She's actually um, building up a set of expectations that nothing of any significance can happen in this poem other than the little girl will read the magazine and the aunt perhaps will come back out. And it's always fascinating to watch where exactly she um, does the change. Um, I mean, this is on the second page where, um, where she goes, um, uh, you know, um, I, I, when she says, I might have been embarrassed but wasn't. I mean, I mean, that is probably the least, you know, if, if you compare this to, to, to the American poem that's being written in the same year, you find it almost... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. No one is willing to be, to be in possession of this sort of ease with a line, this sort of ease with a conversational tone. And um, what took me completely by surprise was that it was me. What, what, me? My voice in my mouth without thinking at all. And the crucial word becomes the word I, where, where actually that whole idea of who she is um, becomes um, almost incantatory as she moves with the word I, um, the, the word I, in, instead of being the single consciousness who merely remembers a single event there was not of much importance. The eye becomes surrounded with mystery, with question, with um, um, wonder. Um, so I was my foolish aunt. I, and then the word I has to be corrected here. We were falling, falling, our eyes glued to the cover. And she's always moving back as though for full protection to fact. The date February 1918. This business of um, where she mentions the war was on, which is in the last stanza, um, um, 
in November 1917, the largest explosion that had ever taken place in the world took place in Halifax Harbour, where a munitions ship um, was, was crashed into by another ship and, and blew up. And um, large numbers of people were killed. But her mother was in the actual mental hospital there and the windows were blown in. So you can just imagine this um, six-year-old and the war, that it, that it wasn't nothing that the war was on. But, um, but what's fascinating is the fact that uh, what she's doing with tone how she's using tone almost to manipulate the reader into a state of ease and then using the same tone to unsettle the reader totally, to get the word. One of the, one of, one, in a way, one of the crucial words in poetry in these years, the word I, and get the word and, and turn it and turn it and see where it will take you, correct it, um, undermine it. So the whole idea of personal identity will in this very real place named, in this very real um, time named, with, with um, all the details described, the, the very thing at the centre, the I, the person, the idea of personhood, selfhood, is to be undermined, questioned, and uh, made dramatic. I think also it may be worth pointing out that the kind of characteristic downplaying is there in the lines... How had I come to be here like them and over here a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse but hadn't? That's, that's a kind of bookend to I might have been embarrassed but wasn't. Um, sort of turning the temperature down on the stove before it gets, before it gets too hot. Um, the, um, the, the next poem is... Um, uh, Bishop had, had an enormous interest in geography. And almost sometimes that she was desperately interested in geography as a way of keeping history at bay. And, and, of course, the idea of travelling in Brazil for her and keeping diaries and writing letters. So her, uh, I, mean, I mean, her letters from her journeys um, are absolutely marvellously, you know, filled with deep description. I, I think this time in Santorum we've got to watch how the extraordinary precision of the detail adds up to something much more than mere travelogue. But it does so subtly, strangely, in a way that's not obvious. I mean, in a way you don't say, oh, this is where she starts to make a poem from casual travel experience, that it's almost um, imperceptible at times. There's something happening in the rhythm here, which I think is the sort of thing that Tom Gunn began to notice in her work, that underneath what was casual was something that was um, much more deliberate, but still hidden, and was to do with actual rhythm, the sound of words, the, uh, the gaps where the commas come, how the lines end, and, and, and that, that, that whole idea of the power, what, what's buried in understatement, how much you can do with a short sentence. And, and it's not, I think it's not nothing that she was, um, you know, in Florida um, and knew some of the people Hemingway knew and was aware of what, what Hemingway was doing in prose of paring things down to very little to see how much emotion you could get if you didn't name the emotion, but get the emotion from the rhythm that's buried. Um, in, in prose as much as in, uh, I mean in poetry as much as in prose. So will, will, will we listen to this? Yeah, one, one brief comment. I think one of the, the themes of, of these series is, is always what, what, is the, what is similar and what is different about um, reading a collection of poetry and maybe attending a, a, a live reading. Um, and th- this is true of, of both the gun and the bishop recordings that we're hearing. If, if you were able to hear them in, in full, you'd be able to, I think, appreciate the poet's choices as, as maybe skeptical as each of them would have been about 
saying yes to an invitation and showing up before a crowd of people. Um, the uh, reading that Bishop gives starts with the map, it ends with Santorim, and there's a poem in between. So there's her um, kind of uh, moving from, from kind of theoretical travel through the uh, looking and contemplating of, of the maps reanimated and then this kind of actual travelogue. But similarly, among the six poems that she, she reads, one is, uh, and, and speaking of Florida and, and Hemingway and the Cubans living down in Key West, there's uh, Hieronymo's house. And one of the images uh, in that poem is uh, kind of, she goes, the eye in Hieronymo's house is not Elizabeth Bishop, it's, it's Hieronymo. And she goes through the house and, and describes his prized possessions. And they're not, they're not many of them. Um, but one, one of them is a, a wasp's nest. And when the hurricanes come, it's one of the things that he takes with him to higher ground. And a, a wasp's nest shows up in this poem uh, as well. Something to watch out for. Okay. This is about five minutes. Of course, I may be remembering it all wrong after, after how many years. That golden evening, I really wanted to go no farther. More than anything else, I wanted to stay a while in that conflux of two great rivers, Tapajos and Amazon, grandly, silently flowing, flowing east. Suddenly there had been houses, people, and lots of mongrel river boats skittering back and forth under a sky of gorgeous underlit clouds with everything gilded, burnished along one side, and everything bright, cheerful, casual, or so it looked. I liked the place. I liked the idea of the place. Two rivers. Hadn't two rivers sprung from the Garden of Eden? No, that was four, and they diverged. Here, only two, and coming together. Even if one were tempted to literary interpretation, such as life, death, right, wrong, male, female. Such notions would have resolved, dissolved straight off in that watery, dazzling dialectic. In front of the church, the cathedral rather, there was a modest promenade and a belvedere about to fall in the river. Stubby palms, flamboyant like pans of embers, Buildings one story high, stucco, blue or yellow. One house faced with azulejos, buttercup yellow. The street was deep in dark gold river sand, damp from the ritual afternoon rain. And teams of zebus plodded, gentle, proud, and blue, with down-curved horns and hanging ears, pulling carts with solid wheels. The zebu's hoofs, the people's feet, weighted in golden sand, dampered by golden sand. So the on, almost the only sounds were creaks and shush, shush, shush. Two rivers full of crazy shipping, people all apparently changing their minds, embarking, disembarking, rowing clumsy dories. After the Civil War, some southern families came here. Here they could still own slaves. They left occasional blue eyes, English names, and oars. No other place, no one, 
on all the Amazons, 4,000 miles, does anything but paddle. A dozen or so young nuns, white-habited, waved gaily from an old stern wheeler getting up steam, already hung with hammocks. Off to their mission, days and days away up God knows what lost tributary. Side wheelers, countless wobbling dugouts. A cow stood up in one, quite calm, chewing her cud while being ferried, tipping, wobbling somewhere to be married. A river schooner with raked masts and violet-colored sails tacked in so close her bowsprit seemed to touch the church. The cathedral, rather. A week or so before there had been a thunderstorm and the cathedral had been struck by lightning. One tower had a widening zigzag crack all the way down. It was a miracle. The priest's house right next door had been struck too, and his brass bed, the only one in town, galvanized black. <laughs> Gracias a Dios, he had been in Belém. <laughs> in the blue pharmacy, the pharmacist had hung an empty wasp's nest from a shelf. Small, exquisite, clean, matte, white, and hard as stucco. I admired it so much he gave it to me. Then my ship's whistle blew. I couldn't stay. Back on board, a fellow passenger, Mr. Swan, Dutch, the retiring head of Phillips Electric, really a very nice old man, who wanted to see the Amazon before he died, asked, What's that ugly thing? <laughs> I think that's enough. I think that's enough. I think that um, what, what we noticed here is the, is the anti-heroic nature of the voice, that she's interested in small things. And it's almost as though she's, not, she's writing a poem within the poem, a poem to say... You know, I will not make large statements about life. But don't think I can't. If, if, if I really wanted to, you know, I could use the word dialectic in a poem, which is more than you could do. And I could make it work in a poem. But other than that, um, I have no interest in making philosophical statements. I want to notice things. And, 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 and I want to find a rhythm whereby if I notice enough and I find a rhythm enough, I will actually manage to create a level of feeling around noticing that will be almost exquisite, that will, be, will have a sense in it of, of sort of density and purity. But, but you will never know where that came from, what moment that began. And also, I know how to end a poem, which is on a dying fall, which is to find almost nothing at the end to say. And I will not make this wasp's nest into a symbol. I will do anything to stop that. It's a wasp's nest. But nonetheless, despite the fact my efforts not to make it into something that you can say it really is standing for something else, it is um, something that she wants to bring with her. It, it, it does have a mysterious presence in the poem as object. We cannot be sure what it means or even what it does here. But nonetheless, the fact that everything else has been in a state of flux and that this somehow has hardened, that nature has hardened it into becoming an artefact 
it seems, as much um, as, a, as a thing in nature, and that that has to mean something. But, but she has no intention of saying what. And, um, and again, this joke about the cathedral, you know, that it's not a church, it's a cathedral, ha, you know, it's repeated twice as though her correcting herself is actually, um, you, you know, is, is a fundamental part of her system. That, that in other words, in the same way as, as um, um, rivers crazy, crazy shipping, all people all apparently changing their minds. There's always a sense in her poems that the poems came as a result of her changing her mind. That, that, that noticing something and feeling she hadn't noticed it enough and coming back to it and back to it to see if there's one more colour or one more detail that can be described. Yeah, I think, I think it's worth um, underlining that you hear the audience's laughter. Um, Bishop is funny in this, this poem um, with the parentheticals and the self-correcting uh, and the, the, the through line of cathedral and church, but also the cow getting married and the priest having the only brass bed in town. Um, I don't know if I had been in the audience that night that I would have laughed out loud, but there it is on, on the, re- the recording. I, I don't mean that I wouldn't have laughed out loud because it's not funny, but rather because it sort of takes you by surprise. Mm. You're not expecting... There's, there's a feeling that she must have smiled, that she must have right. done something. Because yeah. it's, it's, you can hear her a little laugh under her voice. And you wish for the video in, in that respect, too, because the, the, you inch closer by having her uh, there, her voice uttering she the She would poem. have made you wipe that video, you know, yeah. it would have been so, so sad because you would have had it and then not. That's true. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of time. Should we move quickly yeah. to yeah. the Tom Gunn? Yeah, I just want to say that, um, just, uh, how much, uh, how are we doing? We'll get oh, it oh, in. oh, we're doing badly. No, we're, um, we started late. So oh, we, oh, you we're started fine. late. Yeah. Just that um, it really is impossible to say Tom Gunn was one type of poet and not another. And that um, he may end up being the poet for us of states of dreaming, of waking from sleep, of being of, of those, that first hour of consciousness. He may be a poet about gay experience. He may be a 16th century poet in the 20th century. He may be the great um, elegist, the greatest elegist um, of his time. He may be, you know, the, those, those poems in The Man with Night Sweats may be poems with the best read in conjunction with some poems in the 16th century, some poems by Thomas Hardy. Um, this first one, anyway, is when, um, I, I mean, people felt that there were people in this very barrio who felt that he had gone to hell in San Francisco, that he had loosened his rhythms, uh, that he had stopped being precise, that he had stopped being this great poet of his first books, fighting terms, and um, that, that, he was, um, that he had really given up the game. And uh, he himself really hated this view of, of his own work. He felt that he had, he had found something golden um, in the golden state um, for his poetry. But then... then he produced, um, in the time of AIDS, he produced The Mammoth Night Sweats, where he went back to um, using rhythm, sorry, using stanza form, using strict meters and using rhyme. And um, he was probably the only poet in California in that time to know what a rhyme even was. I mean, we're talking about the time of Gary Snyder and of um, 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 Allen Ginsberg. So let's just listen to one of these elegies. One, one quick note, sorry to jump in is this this is another instance where it pays to know what has come before in the reading that Gunn has set up like a musician who arrives at a set list some of these recordings you listen to and the the poet will be bumbling and trying to figure out what it is he or she should read next Um, in this instance it's very deliberate so 
Um, th this is a poem that is about a friend of his called Charlie Hinckley, who dies of AIDS. There's an earlier poem in the reading, uh, which is about, it's called Differences, and it's about um, meeting Charlie Hinckley for the first time. And, and one of the, the lines is, um, I think, worth having in your head when you listen to this recording, it's conscience and courage stood fleshed out in you. Memory unsettled. Your, your pain still hangs in air. Sharp motes of it suspended. The voice of your despair, that also is not ended. When near your death, a friend asked you what he could do. Remember me, you said. We will remember you. Once, when you went to see another with a fever in a like hospital bed, with terrible hothouse cough and terrible hothouse shiver that soaked him and then dried him, and you perceived that he had to be comforted. You climbed in there beside him and hugged him plain in view, though you were sick enough and had your own fears too. Um, what he did here is that he found that the relaxed rhythms he'd been using in, in his free verse suddenly could be used again and he could relax them and tighten them that was he could use the meters he had been using as a young poet, bring them back, but, but as, in, instead of as a formal made poem, he could make it sound like a voice speaking. He could give it a natural sound that I think came from the work he had done in between being a formalist and being um, a much more relaxed poet. Um, August Kleinsadler, who was a close friend of his and did the first selected poems, um, said, no, stop, you're all wrong about him. He was a great poet of the city. He wrote street poems. These are the poems we should be attending to. You know, the elegies are fine, the early form of poems, but the street poems, notice the street poems. And this poem is called Do Not All Things Well. And I, I, I don't want to read the whole poem because we're missing out of time, but that, but that line um, is, um, is from a poem called Now Winter Nights Enlarged by Th Thomas Campion. It's a 16th century poem. And I think it has the greatest last line. If, if you're ever... If you're, I mean, it's just so uplifting and so, um, if you're depressed, and also, anyway, just, 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 just listen to the second stanza of this poem by Thomas Campion. It's a poem about love. This time doth well dispense with lover's long discourse. Much speech, much speech hath some defence, though beauty no remorse. All do not all things well. Some measures comely tread. Some knotted riddles tell. Some poems smoothly read. The summer hath his joys, and winter his delights. Though love and all his pleasures are but toys, they shorten tedious nights. And um, so that this poem is one of the poems that um, it's, it's showing Gunn relaxed in San Francisco, just watching the street, just enjoying his life. And uh, sorry, go, go. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and having earlier read a poem called "In Time of Plague." which is about two junkies named John and Brad who are trying to tempt him to, I guess, shoot up heroin with their needle on a park bench, which he declines to, to do. Um, there are John and Brad, the, the true junkies in Time of Plague, and in this poem we have the auto junkies who are his next-door neighbors. Um, here's a poem called 
all do not all things well. Uh, uh, it's the the title is quotation from uh, a poem of um, uh, Campion's turn of the 16th century. New, uh, now winter nights enlarge the number of our hours. It's about the winter occupations of the great house in Elizabethan times. He says, um, all do not all things well. Some measures comely tread, some knotted riddles tell, some poems smoothly read and go, goes on through the occupations that they were doing. Well, this is about Cole Street in San Francisco and about two of my neighbors in the early 1970s who liked to mend cars. Um, I didn't write about it till about 15 years later. The title is also the first line. All do not all things well. Implies that some, therefore, do well for its own sake. One thing they undertake, because it has enthralled them. I used to like the two auto freaks, as I called them, who labored in their driveway, its concrete black with oil, in the next block that year. One, hurt in jungle war, had a false leg. The other raised a huge beard above a huge hell's angel belly. They seemed to live on beer and corn chips from the deli. Always with friends, they sprawled beneath a ruined car in that inert but live way of scrutinizing innards. And one week they examined an en- sorry, and one week they extracted an engine to examine, transplant shining like tar fished out into the sun. It's all that I enjoy, said the stiff-legged boy. That was when the officious realtor had threatened them for brashly operating a business on the street. An outsider, that woman, who wanted them evicted, wanted the neighborhood neat to sell it. That was when the boy from Vietnam told me that he'd firebomb her car. He didn't, of course. She won. I'm sorry that they went quick with a friendly greeting. They were gentle, jokey men, certainly not ambitious, perhaps not intelligent unless about a car. Their work, one thing they knew they could for certain do with a disinterest and passionate expertise to which they gave their best desires and energies. Such oily-handed zest bypassed the self like love. I thought that they were good for any neighborhood. One question for Colm before we open it up to the floor, which is, um, are, are you really the, f- the first one who's, who's taken Bishop and gone and begun to look at them side by side? I hadn't found anything else that did that. Well, in the oral autobiography, they, they do interview Gunn, you know, about her. Yeah. But, no, I don't think anyone else has noticed that the, um, that they're, they're, I think the time they spent together um, was significant because I think their poetics had a great deal in common. And, and the fact that I think they, they both were interested in figures like George Herbert or in figures like Campion, what they were reading in poetry, and the fact that they, I think, felt like outsiders in their world. I mean, there was no one in California writing as Gunn was writing. Um, and when he then wrote his free verse poems, there was no one in England writing like he was writing. So he was always on his own as a poet. He didn't come in a school. Yeah. Even though he was associated with Ted Hughes, he had really very little in common with, with, with Hughes. And um, 
Bishop, Bishop was the same. And in, in other words, you, see, you even see with this last poem, so much is casual. So, so much is just something ordinary, just being written down and said. And then, and then, he can get away with um, such oily-handed zest, which is, you know, just something bypass the self like love. And you're back with the campion and with the whole idea of, of trying to say something mysterious, but putting it in a context which is so ordinary that it seems to actually repel mystery. And that mystery can enter all the more powerfully for that. You say in Love in a Dark Time that, that these were writers who meant a great deal to you as a, as a teenager, um, ch- chiefly um, for the, the, the secret of their homosexuality and how they concealed it or how it manifested itself in the work in, in, in other ways. I'm interested, because you're no longer a teenager, in how well, I, am, I am at heart. Give me a break. Your relationship <laughs> to these poets and their, their work has deepened. You said earlier that the more you know about Elizabeth Bishop's life, the, the more you see what's lurking uh, between the lines. And would you just say something about living with these writers' work ac- across the years? Um, that I certainly didn't know that Bishop was gay um, when her selected poems were published by Chatter and Windus. And when Geography 3 came out, I, I did, still didn't know. Um, I didn't know Gunn was gay, even though it was staring me in the face. And I had a friend who was doing a thesis on him who didn't know he was gay. So that it was something in, in the poetry. And at first, in Love in a Dark Time, I thought, well, that must be that sort of gayness. It must be a thing called gayness. It must be in poetry. And you read a poem, and even though the, you don't know the poet's gay, something about the lines or the phrases or the way the commas, it's a gay way of writing commas, or the gay, there's a thing called the gay semicolon. And uh, I, I really had to rethink this in the light of reading about both of them, um, and, uh, was, of course, that um, they both lost parents in childhood. And that that may be what I was finding in the work, in the phrasing, in a sort of melancholy, in a tug of emotion that was in the poems but not actually mentioned in the poems was in the rhythm of the poems and I may have misunderstood when I read them first thinking it was a, when, I, when I found out they were gay thought that was why I was interested that it may have been actually something else Should we take a, a few questions? Uh, just a few there's a microphone that right, Claire's going to bring around and because yes. it's being uh, both video and audio recorded. It's not called video anymore. Um, but we'll destroy it later, yes, so it's, we'll, 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 write you, we'll, we'll write a long letter complaining yeah. about something. Please wait for the mic. Hi, hello. Um, thank you for sharing all that amazing knowledge. I mean, it's very generous indeed. Um, you, do you think that it's always better to hear a poet read their own poetry, or is it just a separate thing can you get re- readers of poems who do it better than the poet? Does that make sense? Um, I, I mean, I, this is about reading po- poetry. Um, I, it really made a, such a huge difference to so many people in Ireland, and I, I presume here also, when they saw Seamus Heaney reading, and the way he introduced the poem, and his, his own accent in the poem. Uh, so that, that, would, that would be one real example of hearing somebody and it making an enormous difference to the poems. Um, the problem with actors is that they act. And you can hear Bishop and Gunn just deciding, I'm not acting, I'm not doing that for you. You know, th- this, this poem is filled with emotion, but it, I'm, I'm burying it for you. And that in itself is an interesting idea. They're sort of 
bad reading by the poet of the poet's own poems. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because I think everyone lives in fear of becoming Dylan Thomas. You know, of going on a circuit filled with alcohol, drinking yourself to death with huge audiences every night as you, sh- once more in tongue, do not go gentle into that good night. You know, and, um, but it's also, it's also marvellous to hear Philip Larkin reading and this sort of extraordinary tone he takes. And, uh, uh, yeah, but, but, but she, isn't, she isn't trying to make you emote. She isn't emoting on the stage of the why. She's unemoting, if there's such a, such a, if it's such a word allowed. Yeah, and, and, and to just... One of the, the real privileges of my job is going into the audio archive, and often it's the case that we have the poets for decades and decades, and then there'll be some kind of tribute after they've passed or on some big anniversary, and that will be some combination of poets who are uh, paying tribute, but then actors, right? So there's this data set of um, any number of, of actors taking the work that you've already heard the poet do um, across decades. I think um, there are all sorts of interesting academic answers. The, what, what's going on with self-performance? Um, it, just in the, in the examples that we've had in, in this series, um, you know, Ted Hughes came as close to being Dylan Thomas and succeeding, maybe, I think, um, yeah. at least to my ears. Yeah. Um, he did, yeah. And um, then the, uh, we, we've had, we featured Elliot in, in this, and um, it, uh, it, 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 it's compelling, it's dramatic, um, uh, in, and um, it's, it's worth having, you know, braved the rain in December 1950 to go on heard somebody like Elliot Reed, although he says, I don't know why you would have done this. You know, he comes out on stage and immediately is undermining the experience <laughs> for the audience. But the, the performance, he doesn't sabotage the poems. But I would say even today, you, you, um, you hear people uh, read and you think, oh, I, that, the, work, the work on the page deserved a lot better, whatever better is to your ears. Or uh, in, in the other direction... Um, somebody's performance will, quote-unquote, sell the poem. And I think that same idea is true if you've been to any number of readings. But also, because a, a, a reading is, is set in a very specific time and place, um, you, you know, somebody could have uh, had a late night or had a frazzled commute. And I think that's some of the, uh, um, the moment in timeness of these recordings that is, that is lost. Um, we treat them with a certain reverence because they were carefully preserved and it's many years after the fact and uh, in, in a lot of instances it's a given that these are authors who've already ascended um, there, are, there are a lot of for example in, in any given year um, that these recordings would have been plucked out of there would have been a reading series with 30, 40, sometimes more events and if you just look at the season brochures and across 80 some odd years you know, who made it and who didn't make it? Um, who are we continuing to service? Or who, to our surprise, sort of comes around again? Um, I, uh, b- before reading Calm's book, which is on Elizabeth Bishop, I had never read Tom Gunn and was very happy to discover that we had multiple recordings of Tom Gunn in the archive and then to have the opportunity further to come talk about him, which entailed me, you know, thinking seriously about his work and learning about, about his life. That's a long answer, which I'll cut off. You talked very interestingly about Elizabeth Bishop's life and Tom Gunn's life. Do you think knowing 
about the background of a poet or the, the life they've lived adds anything to the poetry? Oh, um, I think to, to your understanding yes, of the poetry. I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, oddly enough, I think even more for a, for a poet than a prose writer, biography can really enrich a poem. Um, I think it's certainly true in the case of Yeats, for example, um, with Roy Foster's biography. But with, with Bishop just simply knowing the amount of loss and the amount of loss, the amount of loss in the life and the amount of loss not mentioned in the poems. And you realise the poems are almost bulwarks or anchors or ways of keeping the other thing at bay. And then you watch as feeling comes in, but comes in in a strange way. So, yes, I think it really matters that, that, that we know about the life. The, the problem, I mean, for me, the problem is that, that I read um, Sylvia Plath before I knew much about her. And I read Elizabeth Bishop the same. So I had the good experience of finding out later. I think the problem becomes if you suddenly think the only thing interesting about Sylvia Plath is her suicide and is her relationship to Ted Hughes. I think yeah, then you think, well, you miss the actual poetry. So there's, there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one because sometimes you need not to know anything. And there are poets we don't know much about. Go ahead, please. That Thomas Campion poem, for example, we don't need to know who he was in love with or why he was in love or what was going on that made him have tedious nights. We just don't need to know. It's just one of those lyric moments that belongs to us all, but a biography won't help us read. And so that's an example of one where it doesn't matter. And to just give one example about Bishop, it's sort of where you put the weight. And it's interesting to see when new biographies come out where the weight is placed. There's there's an anecdote in, in the one that's coming out this Paul, um, she wanted to be a professional musician. She studied in grade school and high school, and she gets to Vassar, and one of the earliest part of being a serious music student at Vassar, where that's true anywhere, is that you had to regularly perform in public. And one of the first times, if not the first time that she had to do it, I think it was the first time, she freezes. And these were pieces that she'd been practicing and knew how to play. And it, it, um, it is not a minor crisis in her life at that moment and word gets back to her music teacher who had been her uh, instructing her for, for years prior to, to that moment but you think about something as local as her skepticism in terms of performance or how much she discloses of herself on the page or just what her persona is and how much do you weigh a, a moment like that where she thought one of if not the central um, future for her was was to be. I mean, the, the idea of Elizabeth Bishop as a concert pianist is almost unfathomable. But there, there, you know, there in the record is the uh, the, the fact uh, of the case. And was she diverted utterly? Was this the moment where things went a different way? There's a similar instance later where she moves to New York and enrolls in medical school at Cornell. And Marianne Moore apparently talks her out of it. So how much do you weigh? So which do you want, the Elizabeth Bishop the concert pianist or the Elizabeth Bishop you know, neurosurgeon or something? Um, uh, so the, the, I think it's, it's, it's how you, you, you weigh it and you, you sort of you, you, you think about what your sources are and from which you're gathering this information. Um. Well, I was just going to say that, um, in a sense, all... Bishop's poems are autobiographical in that they're all true. She wasn't interested in writing poems that weren't true. And all the details that she writes about, she has seen and makes you see them. Um, and, but because she was um, a very 
reserved person and didn't like um, confessional poems at all. She said, um, I just wish they wouldn't say those things um, about confessional stuff. Um, it wasn't until she wrote her last poem, Sonnet, which actually she says who she is, and the New Yorker wouldn't take it, even though it is a very subtle little poem, Sonnet, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Sonnet is one of the, I mean, it's a skinny little it's, Sonnet. And there are hardly any words in it at all. And you feel it's, it's almost a way, it's a letter to Robert Lowell, who'd been writing uh, thousands of sonnets and, and revising them. And he was sonnet-led, he was sonnet-crazy. And uh, often with her, she's often sending a message to Lowell, calm down, honey, just calm down, honey, you know, it's fine, just, just you know, keep, keep it down. And with, with her little sonnet, you feel it's a message to Lowell saying, um, this is the sonnet, you know, I just wrote one. And she loved uh, that idea of, I just, you know, I take 20 years, you write in a frenzy, you know, I am the real artist. And of course, she's the one, you're talking about that, who makes it, who doesn't. I thought it was a funny, she did say to someone about, um, I, I loved the phrase, I always think it would make a great villanelle, there isn't anyone I couldn't make, there's no woman I couldn't make, meaning... You know, and uh, I, I, I love the idea that somehow or other, that behind all this reticence, there was that she was a treme- tremendous drunk, and would call people late at night, making crazy phone calls, and the poems just didn't didn't do that. You know, I love that distance between the poem and the self. Well, they they both abuse substance, and one of the things that you could you know talk about, although we haven't, is you know, were they composing work? Did they ever compose work? Under under the the influence, the, the characteristics of this work would would lead us to think that that was not the the, the case. Um, I don't know enough to say. Um, I mean, Gunn has something very interesting to say about that. He's saying that that this that, that, that the controlling imagination, which he certainly had one, often comes from vast chaos, and that he would think he was talking about Christopher Marlowe, and he was talking about figures who who, who seem to have had led hugely untidy lives you often find that somehow or other, as that gets distilled onto the page, it gets distilled with great, um, a great exercise of fierce control, which is, I think, what both of them did. And it's a very interesting um, dichotomy you know, between the actual uh, surface self, um, which is untidy, and the, and the some, I hesitate to say, inner self, but the self as artist, which wants to make actual very, very reticent, tidy, perfect, as it were, poems. What's in there? Uh, Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.